Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today, and we are joined in the studio by Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. We have something from Larry that we really want you to hear and that we want him to share. First, a couple minutes to recognize that there is a horrifying war going on in Gaza between the Israelis and Hamas. There is a horrifying war continuing in the Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia. And our House of Representatives doesn't have a speaker and our government is dysfunctional. I think those are three of the headlines for today. And it has me in a state of close to despair. It seems that the world is falling apart and that murder and violence is so prominent that there seems to be no escape and our government can't function. So, Larry, you have any words that could help me feel a tad better? Or you, Dan Torres, anything from anyone? I'm looking for any port in this storm. Okay, Larry Hyde, what's the answer? The Northampton Main Street design is going to solve all these problems. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I'm not uh, entirely optimistic uh, as well. I think these are challenging times, but... You know what? I These think are challenging kind of, times. Are you, you running for office? I challenging am, I, times. I am the challenging times. I, I, I want to go back in history just for one second, Bill. We've been through crisis like this before in the past, and when you were a very young little boy in the '60s, there was 50s. a lot of to fifty. Well, not '50s, <laughs> '60s. He was a very young man. And uh, and let's be honest, back then, you, you also dealt with uh, tumultuous times that were very difficult. So when I look back at history, I can feel like these are challenging times, just like it was, okay. I would say, in the late 60s. So we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, so the world was going to come to an end. But we got over it. <laughs> you see, that's one example. And we, right. and we lost we lost presidents and great right. leaders in American history, and they were tumults, and there were race riots, and there were, tumults. you know, tumults. tumults. Is that like a, a soft drink? It is. It <laughs> is. I just invented <laughs> I would want to it, tell you, though, yes. that just the person who can explain all of this to you is Heather Cox Richardson. Some of us are fans. And she's speaking tonight at Symphony Hall for free in Springfield at 6 p.m., sponsored by Mass Humanities. Full disclosure, I'm on the board, um, but a lot of us follow her, read her her daily blog. She has a very long, full blog today about all these problems that are going on. She has a book that just came out. So if you're interested in having somebody intelligent, a little bit to the left of center, explain this to you, then go to Symphony Hall tonight in Springfield at 6 p.m. Just don't bring any uh, weapons because there is a metal detector when you walk in, but it's absolutely free. <laughs> and my advice <coughs> is you... Excuse me. <clears throat> you park at the MGM Casino for free. Walk through the casino. <laughs> don't look at anything. <laughs> and come out the door and then cross the street to Symphony Hall. Uh, I must ask: Were you really worried about people bringing weapons to a lecture? By I'm just Anne telling you. Be, <laughs> I don't know. Be, don't bring a metal cigarette lighter. Just okay. be prepared because it's just like going to the airport, going to going Got to it. the plane. Got um, it. But it's absolutely free. I've been to several of these. Um, and it's basically an interview with Heather Cox Richardson, uh, conducted tonight by Brian Boyles, who is the uh, executive director of Mass Humanities. Uh, these are fascinating. They've been going on for 50 years. Symphony This Hall. lecture series. This lecture series, yeah. Uh, and we here above the tofu curtain don't hear that much about it, but it's very worth going. And if you follow these issues, and you probably do, the, all the news, um, the, the two horrible wars, what's going on with our Congress, uh, all the other threats to democracy uh, in the United States and elsewhere around the world, Heather Cox Richardson is a great resource, somebody who's got her finger on the pulse, not only of the nation, of the world, 
and I'm going tonight. Well, I just want to quickly add, I just also think there's, there's going to be more instability to come. I don't think, I think we're living in a new world, and there's a new age emerging, and uh, I, I think you should expect some more of this uh, instability and, and war to actually well, Dan, continue you started to off by so, saying that, uh, I, remember I, how terrible I, things were, and we got over it, now I'm you just, just creating, said it's going to get worse. So thank you for that. I'm <laughs> just saying in a historical perspective, when you look back at history, we've been through periods like this of instability. I'm just saying I think in our current period, there's a lot of instability. That is true. What is different now, I believe, mm. is that we no longer have two political parties that creates some kind of stability. stability and foundation. We have the Democratic Party, and then we have a Republican Party that is bordering on fascism and is going to be led by a fascist and is demanding fascist solutions to America's problems. Yes, and they're using chaos to attain that goal. Well, here's a question. Can at least 20 of them work with Democrats and nominate some sort of independent candidate to be speaker? Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney could, however, <laughs> he's retiring and she's been gone. Yeah, or or they nominate and elect uh, Donald Trump as speaker, except that then he would have to actually make a decision and take a position. They'd have to change the House rule that says nobody can serve as speaker if they've uh, been indicted and haven't been cleared yet. Is that true? That's absolutely true. Now, that could change the House rule, but at the moment, they can't. Elective. Oh, good news. I didn't know that. See, thank you. I, I knew. That's if I, why you have me here. That's why we have Talking about documentary films <laughs> and house rules. Okay, great. Okay, you do have for us today a documentary film you want to tell us about. What is it? Larry? Oh, I've got the wackiest, weirdest film. I'm not sure it's going to get an award, but I loved it. Uh, you will love it. It is about our entire lives. <laughs> Yours and mine together? Yours and mine. An anybody who's over the age of five. Uh, <laughs> this is, film is called Splice Here, a projected odyssey. One of the worst names ever for a film. But it's a very entertaining film made by a guy named Rob Murphy, who is a projectionist. And I'm not talking about the psychological kind. He is a literal projectionist. Uh, he had a job starting as a young man in some of the last theaters that were showing widescreen Cinerama films in the outback of Australia, of all places. And he became obsessed with saving the theatrical experience from the point of view of the person who is up in that booth projecting the film. And he said something at the beginning of this film that really caught my attention that I could relate to, that he got involved with this as a young man because he had his first job in the local movie theater. And that's exactly how I got involved at the age of 14, in Great New York, Great Neck, New York, at the Squire and Playhouse Theaters that were opposite each other on Middle Neck Road. And my job was to take the tickets, clean up the popcorn, make, people, make sure people got to their seats, take that, tell them to take their feet off, to stop kissing and smoking where they were not allowed, and to deliver snacks to the projectionist. Were you the guy who came around? and said, stop making out in the back Abs there. <laughs> I was that guy. And we had a shortage of, of flashlights, so we, had to, we hid our flashlights in the folds of the curtains along the walls. And it was also my job to open the curtains and close the curtains and go behind the screen to do that where the film was projected but reversed. You saw it in reverse. And I would stand there and watch that film backwards for hours because it had nothing to do between the shows, I mean, while the film was showing. And I learned my lesson, get to the theater several hours early, the first time a film is, is there to be, you know, the first showing of it, so I could watch it all the way through because it was driving me crazy to come in and out of the theater and only see pieces of it. 
And the summer I worked there in 1964, I saw um, Dr. No and From Russia With Love each 126 times. And then The Train, <laughs> and then Ship of Fools, and What's New Pussycat? Ooh. <laughs> Fortunately, Larry is not going to sing for us now. Okay. So, but going back to Splice here, yeah. here you tell us it's a, it's a story about uh, a projectionist. Uh, it's, it's a documentary made by this projectionist. He has, excuse me, <clears throat> he has hired uh, a fine crew of uh, filmmakers and, and editors. Uh, so it has a very professional feel to it, which you would hope would come from somebody who's been working with film their whole life. Uh, and he's really obsessed. He's, uh, in fact, there's, the film has a great plot because what he's trying to do is reinstall a 70-millimeter projector for the opening of a Quentin Tarantino film called The Hateful Eight, which was not a great film. But the idea that was, and this was international news at the time, that, he was, that Tarantino was going to bring back c Cinerama or Cinemascope or Panavision, and the film goes into great detail about the differences between what these things are and the obsession that some of these uh, projectionists around the world have for finding and preserving this equipment, which is in the backyards, the, 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 the garages, in the waste bins of these theaters all around the world, and they take them and they restore them and open up these grand palatial theaters to have these one-time screenings, and the plot of this film revolves around Will Quentin Tarantino come to Australia for the opening of a Cinerama version of Hateful Eight? So we hear, let's hear a clip from uh, the trailer for Splice Here, A Projected Odyssey. Have you ever looked back on your life? Year where it felt like everything important to you first began? The 80s were a wonderful time to catch up on old Hollywood. The prints were available, the old cinemas were still available. You would pat the projector at the end of the night, say, oh, good job, and that way you kept them happy, and the next day they'd come and perform well for you again, if you're lucky. Then overnight, digital projection changed the way we see movies forever. We sort of knew it was coming, but we didn't really have a sense of what it could mean. And now, it's threatening to change the way we'll remember them. Film running through a projector is transferred to an audience. I think there is a life to that image. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of reels of unidentified films sitting in archives throughout the world. People have their little fiefdoms and whatever and whatnot. Well, you know, shouldn't the importance be to save the films? The preciousness of this print, I, I cannot tell you how it makes you feel. So that, that voice you heard at the end is Rob Murphy. I cannot tell you how it makes you feel the preciousness of the print. And in this film, you're, you're, sometimes I got lost in the technical stuff. And I, I know this material. I know what an anamorphic lens is. You know, I know what widescreen, I know what aspect ratios are. Uh, I think the casual viewer doesn't really need to understand all those things. So the, but the words, uh, you know, IMAX, Panavision, Polyvision, Cinerama, digital, aspect ratios, 3D. You know. But why do we care? I mean... I care because Dan uh, gave me 10 extra years, which I really appreciated being <laughs> just, a, just a kid in the 60s. But I would like to know, what is it about this film that makes us care about technology that is no longer used? I'm so glad, what? I'm glad you asked because I prepared for this interview, Bill. And my answer is, do you remember going to see 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yes. Was it in widescreen? Probably was. Yes. Yes. And do you remember actually a film that preceded that when Cinerama first came out, 
instead of showing Hollywood features, which hadn't been made yet, but they wanted to convince the audience that this was worthwhile, they made these goofy, like, travelogue films, and one of them was called Windjammer. Oh, I kind of yes, remember. Yeah, that bringing back memories? And I went to see Windjammer. This, is, this new segment will be called Therapy with Larry Hot <laughs> And Nostalgia. So I went to see this at the Manhattan. That's not a bad title for a segment. <laughs> Therapy and Nostalgia with Larry Hot. Um, better than Sex with Larry Hot, which is what you have with your next guest. <laughs> 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 Just for the record, Sex Matters with Dr. Jane oh, Fleischer. I always, I always get that title wrong. So I remember going to see Windjammer, which was this innocuous, anodyne film about a big sailboat, but in widescreen cinerama with this incredible surround sound that nobody had ever heard before. And it was just a cruise, just the sailors. And I could particularly remember one line from the film that whenever anybody said a curse word, they had to put a quarter in a box. And I've always thought, I'd be really wealthy now if I had been doing that my whole life. So this is my memory of, from my childhood was going to the theater and having that group cinema experience. And now, how often do you go to the, to the theater now, Bill? Well, that's a COVID-related question, actually. Okay. I used to go frequently. Right. I go less frequently now because I'm careful. Do you have a widescreen being... TV at your house? We have a big screen. A big screen TV at your house? Um, I've, I mean, it's not like being in a theater, but it's, no, it's bigger not. than what I had as a kid. So the, cha the challenge and the, one of the, the themes of this film is what has happened to that group experience? But it's not from the point of view. Of, it's not people saying, oh, I used to go to the theater when I was growing up, and I miss that now. It's from the point of view of the people who make it happen in the theater. Uh, and this is a different perspective, and that's one of the reasons this film works, because it's an original point of view. We are speaking with Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Florence-based filmmaker Larry Hott. We are speaking about the film Splice here. We're going to continue this conversation right after this. Pussycat, pussycat, I've got flowers and lots of hours to spend with you. So go and bother you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Art and history, material objects that tell a story. Porcelain, silk, pearls. In Sally Wen Mao's new collection of poems, The Kingdom of Surfaces, these material objects of art frame an important conversation on beauty, empire, commodification, and violence. The Kingdom of Surfaces is a finalist for the Maya Angelou Book Prize. Broadside Bookshop presents author Sally Wen Mao reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces this Thursday at 7 at the Edwards Church. Following her reading, Sally Wen Mao will join in a conversation with novelist and poet Ocean Wong. The reading is free and open to the public, but space is limited. So reserve your seat now at broadsidebooks.com. Sally Wen Mao reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces, plus a conversation with Ocean Wong this Thursday at 7 at the Edwards Church, presented by Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. 
What's Cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. We are talking about the film Splice Here, which is available where, Larry? A projected odyssey. Oh, I'm sorry. Splice Here, a projected odyssey. Okay. Well, it's uh, it's probably going to be, I hope it's released in theaters, uh, but it'll eventually be on Netflix and Amazon Prime and all the other ones. Uh, It's a about the theatrical experience, so if it's not really so, you we're going to watch the about a film about the theatrical experience without having the theatrical experience by watching it on Netflix or Prime I, or whatever. I of watched those. it on a small monitor while I was on my rowing machine, and it <laughs> still works. It still works. <laughs> uh, th- this is, I think, this is time to invoke the word oxymoronic, right? <laughs> so, let's uh, to um, find out what oxymoronic means, let's listen to another clip from this great film, Splice Here, a projected Odyssey. The argument that, well, my kids won't watch black and white, one of two things has to happen. Your kids have to grow up. Hey, I saw a photocopy of the Mona Lisa. I know what the Mona Lisa looks like. It's like, technically you do know what the Mona Lisa looks like, but you haven't seen it. Film has a substance which is entirely lacking in what I basically think is big screen television. That's baloney. Are we the last generation to be able to see movies this way? Yes. The art form of projected film is on its way out, not because it's not good. Wow, you forget how good it is. The only people who are seeing this risk in any degree are the people who are actually displaced, the projectionists. Larry Hunt, we introduce you as an Emmy Award winning filmmaker, but you're not really making film anymore. You're making computer uh, language. And that then is projected onto a screen. And what I'm trying to understand here is whether the experience of film is actually different from what we see projected onto a screen or at our homes or other places That's what today. this film is about. Is it the quality of the image that you're seeing? Is it whether it's wrapped around a screen, whether it has surround sound, or uh, Odorama, as John Waters did in some of his films? Is it um, the storytelling? Is it the experience of being with other people in the theater? Is it the smell of popcorn? You can argue it's all those things. Um, Where this film starts to go, it goes to a dark place, and I don't mean the dark theater. It goes to a dark place because films deteriorate. They die, the actual substance. The film itself, the the physical film. So films that were made with nitrate can spontaneously combust. There are still places, museums, that can show nitrate film. And there are archives that keep nitrate film. But they're dangerous. And early in the 20th century, they used to film uh, repositories, theaters. Uh, while you were editing, the films would blow up. There's a famous story about uh, Flaherty, who made Nanak of the North uh, and his 
original copy of the film burned while it was just as they were finishing editing it, and he had to go back and refilm everything. And then it comes out that maybe he made that up because he wanted the money because he realized that he hadn't filmed it very well and he needed to start all over again, but nobody knows. But still, nitrate film was very dangerous. Then new stock came out and safety film came out. That's what safety film means. It's not going to blow up, not going to burn up. And did this have anything to do with uh, moving from black and white film to color film? Well, no, that's a completely different idea, but that's a different chemical process. But films started out at different gauges. You know, we're familiar with 16 and 35, but there's also 70. Uh, 35 millimeter. 35 millimeter, sorry. And you, you know, anybody who had a camera would knew what a 35 millimeter film was. Um, but you, you project, these things have a different look when you project them. But all, it's, this, this process of the films deteriorating is called quiet fire. And the Library of Congress is spending millions digitizing films to preserve what's on them because because uh, they can't afford to do all of it. Okay, so I don't want you to give away the ending of mm. the film exactly, but I would like to know your conclusion. Is watching a film this way a different, better, more engrossing, enhancing experience than what we have today? Only if the film is worth watching, and that was my takeaway from this. This person is absolutely obsessed, Rob Murphy, the maker of this film, with watching actual films in widescreen, cinemascope, cinerama, whatever they want to call it, Panavision, they got all these words for it. And the first film they bring to Australia, it's a new film at the time, Quentin Tarantino and The Hateful Eight, which was a hateful film. If you remember, it's a terrible film, hard to watch. So I could imagine, oh, I want to see this beautiful film with all the great sound and I get into the theater and it's a stomach-turning film. I don't want to watch it. I would rather watch a good film on a small television than a bad film on a big screen. And that's something that the film doesn't get into, but that is a worthwhile discussion. Yes, the theatrical experience means something, but only if it's worth being there and seeing it. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Florence Space Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. And this has been Cool Films with Larry Hott on Talk the Talk. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Two weeks from today, Greenfield residents will elect their next mayor, a handful of city councilors, a new tax assessor, and more. Incumbent Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner says she wants to continue serving the city for one more term. I want the voters of Greenfield to know that I want to be their mayor. I love the city. I love the job, strangely enough, and I will continue to get stuff done and move Greenfield forward. The League of Women Voters of Franklin County is hosting Greenfield Candidates Night tonight at 7 p.m. at GCC. Smith College is making progress on converting their campus to carbon neutral by the end of the decade. The $220 million geothermal campus energy project began last year. The Gazette reports Smith's solution to reduce emissions is to construct a series of wells that descend 800 feet into the ground in a closed loop. Liquids sent through the wells adjust to the constant temperature at that depth and then transfer to a power plant on campus. The geothermal project is expected to be completed in 2028, with the campus looking to achieve carbon neutrality by 2030. A basic life support ambulance was put into service Monday in Hadley. It's the first town-owned and operated BLS ambulance in the history of the department. The new ambulance will be staffed initially during daytime hours from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. for seven days a week. It's anticipated that this new ambulance could be deployed to cover an estimated 100 to 150 missed secondary calls for service. 
A real nice sunny day today. Temperature is mainly going to hang around the low to mid 60s. And as we go into the evening, we'll start to see those temperatures dip down into the mid 30s and the low 40s. Thankfully, tomorrow is going to be another nice and sunny day with temperatures going up into the high 60s. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. A food co-op is a different kind of grocery store. A credit union is a different kind of bank. Co-ops and credit unions are owned by the people who shop and bank there. Keep it close to home with local co-ops, credit unions, and worker-owned co-ops. Just $3 a month and you're a member of the Franklin Community Co-op, Greenfields Market, and McCusker's Market. You live here, you eat here. Be a member. 3 bucks a month. McCusker's, Greenfields, your Franklin Community Co-op. Are you looking for space to host a private event? The Hangar Pub and Grill has you covered. Our Amherst, Westfield, and Pittsfield locations are perfect for birthday parties, reunions, corporate events, and more. Customizable menu options make party planning a breeze at an affordable price. Enjoy our award-winning wings along with our other in-house favorites. And don't forget the Amherst Brewing Beer. Visit hangarpub.com events to book today. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to the studio Maria Malagudi, who is the founder and executive director of the Lyme Disease Resource Center, and Nellie Wilson, who is a board member of the Lyme Disease Resource Center. We are so pleased they could be with us so that you can know about an event that perhaps you didn't haven't heard about yet, which is that the Lyme Disease Resource Center is celebrating its 10th anniversary tonight. We'll give you more information on that in just a minute, but I really have a question about my own phrasing of that. So let me start with you, Maria Malgudi, who is the founder and executive director of the Lyme Disease Resource Center. Is celebrating the right word or the wrong word? Celebrating is a correct word. Um, we have really struggled through COVID there were a lot of challenges. We had to close down our office and launch virtual services. So um, we're excited that not only have we survived the COVID epidemic, but we're thriving and we've gone national. Well, I guess good for the Lyme Disease Resource Center, but what does that tell us about the prevalence of Lyme disease? Lyme disease is all across the United States, all across the world. Worse than it was 10 years ago? Absolutely. There's um, 
over 500,000 people that the government counts as having Lyme, but the actual numbers are much higher. Okay, let's go back. What's Lyme disease? Lyme disease is caused by a spirochete called Borrelia. A, a, what, a what, a what? A spirochete. <clears throat> it's a kind of bacteria. Okay. And it acts much like syphilis. And it can burrow into tissue, burrow into the brain. It can change form. Very difficult to diagnose, very difficult to treat. Well, what we know, I think what we know, is that Lyme disease is transmitted by ticks. Is that right? That's correct. And only, deer ticks or all ticks? What? Deer ticks, but there are other diseases and co-infections that can happen. That's and it's very important that people know that Lyme isn't the only disease carried by ticks. Okay. I'm not convinced that celebrate is the right word, but I do do honor the uh, t your 10th anniversary uh, as the founder and director of the Lyme Disease Resource Center. When you talk about the prevalence of Lyme worldwide, that's a surprise to me. I thought this was primarily a disease in the northeastern United States. That's wrong? That's absolutely wrong. Okay, it won't be the first time I'm absolutely wrong. Tell us where it is. <laughs> Any place that has moist, damp, dark plant life. It could be hidden in the leaves, hidden at the beach in the beach grass. It can be in the city, it can be in the country, it can be on your front lawn. Yeah, yeah, which is where I got a, perhaps a positive Lyme test not so long ago. I, I would like to know this, the Lyme Disease Resource Center is located in Northampton? Let me t turn to, to you, uh, uh, Nellie Wilson, board member of the Lyme Disease Resource Center. So we, um, we are located in Northampton, but at this point, all of our services are done virtually. So we have our two monthly support groups that are done via Zoom. We have peer counseling services that are done either over the phone or via video conferencing. And we have people that call us from all over the country to get support and to find resources. Our support groups in particular are so valuable to people to let them know that they are not alone in struggling with Lyme disease. The majority of the people that we are helping have been sick with Lyme um, in its chronic form. So which they, means what? What do they experience? Which means that um, they perhaps had a um, had a tick bite at some point. They went undiagnosed, and it's caused a lot of complex health issues. So one of the things such that as can, and how soon after you. If it's undiagnosed, how soon afterwards do you begin to experience the symptoms? It can be as little as 24 hours after you were bitten. Um, I myself was bitten in 1997 and started experiencing flu-like symptoms the next day. Okay, and, but it could, go, could be weeks or months later? Absolutely. Yep. And for some people, they have been dealing with Lyme disease for a number of years. And it's, a, it's something that um, the medical community, there's a lot of controversy 
um, within the medical establishment. We don't deal with the political side of Lyme disease, but that does exist. But what we do is really try and support individuals who are experiencing a lot of health challenges, whether it be that they have intense neurological symptoms going on, they're experiencing chronic pain, they are having all sorts of chemical sensitivities, things like that. And again, there are the co-infections from having uh, been bitten by a tick. There are other kinds of infections that people can get along with Lyme disease that can further complicate it. So one of the things that we offer are resources and referrals to people that are Lyme literate, we call it. So doctors that are experienced in treating Lyme disease. And when we talk about long-term symptoms of Lyme disease, what are the typical ones? It can be joint pain. It can be mental confusion. It can be headaches, eye problems, fever, chills. Um, the symptoms cross with a lot of other diseases, Lyme, being sick with Lyme for a long time can damage your immune system, which is what happened to me. Um, it's very complex, and it's why it's so difficult to diagnose. So, Maria Malagudi, uh, I did notice on my uh, notes for today's show, uh, please wear a mask, and here we are in the studio wearing a mask. Why are we doing that? Both Nellie and I are immunocompromised. Because of Lyme? Because of Lyme for me and for Nellie for other immune complications. Okay. Yeah. But Lyme can uh, affect your immune system? or Definitely. Does yes. All right. With that as background, tonight there is an event, the 10th anniversary of the Lyme Disease Resource Center, uh, which you founded and is here in Northampton. Tell us what's going to happen tonight and how people can be part of this. They can sign up at our website, LymeDRC.org. Uh, Lyme We're on Zoom. We'll be presenting a little bit of the history of the Lyme Center. We'll have some volunteers, our board members, and um, clients and interested people all invited to share their experience uh, with our center. Obviously free, and anyone can sign up for it. Yes. Absolutely. And what time is it? 7 p.m. And how long do you expect it to go on for? It'll be about two hours. And people can obviously come and go. They don't have yes. to stay for the entire two hours. There'll be presentations about Lyme. There'll be resources. Tell us a bit more so about the, what the, the content will be. It's, it's, about, it's about celebrating the... Um, that our organization has helped so many people. So over the past 10 years, we have helped thousands of people to get resources and support who are living with Lyme disease. And so we're really taking this opportunity with this being our 10th anniversary this month to acknowledge how far our organization has come, that we started out as, a, as like a small idea that Maria had years ago, and now we are supporting people across the United States to get help. If a person had Lyme, uh, didn't know it, 
has symptoms some months later, can they still be treated with doxycycline or other antibiotics? Is it still effective? There are all types of treatments for people who never got treated or got undertreated. Um, absolutely, there are options. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, again, I guess I'd ask you, we're celebrating because there's some optimism about treating Lyme, or this is just a public health crisis that's going to go on because of climate change and more prevalent, the greater prevalence of ticks and so on. I, I think there's um, I think there is some some optimism in that awareness is being raised about Lyme disease and that there are more practitioners that are starting to recognize the epidemic proportions of Lyme disease. And also we're celebrating that our organization has been able to, support people in feeling less alone in going through this journey. And so, you know, we're, we're also doing a fundraiser this month, again, to support us in being able to continue to offer free services. All of the things that we offer are done completely free of charge. Wow. Again, Tonight's event and the fundraiser for people who wish to support the organization, where do they go online? So they can go to LimeDRC.org, and you'll be able to register for the event. It's at 7 p.m. tonight via Zoom, and we would love to have you come join us to learn more about the Lyme Disease Resource Center, what we do, and, uh, and get more information. The Lyme Disease Resource Center, Lyme, L-Y-M-E-D-R-C dot org, L-Y-M-E-D-R-C dot org. The event tonight is at 7 o'clock, free and open to the public for everyone interested and concerned about or wishing more information about Lyme disease. We want to thank Nellie Wilson and Maria Malagudi. Maria is the founder and executive director of the Lyme Disease Resource Center. Nellie Wilson is a board member. We thank you both for your time today and what you have shared with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cause it's a nervous tick motion of the head to the left of the, of the, to the. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures and conversation? And now, let us add dance. Momix presents Alice. A Momix interpretation of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland that sends you flying down a rabbit hole into a seamless blend of illusion, acrobatics, magic, and whimsy. The UMass Fine Arts Center presents Momix, Alice, Wednesday, October 25th at UMass. It's hard to picture a more imaginative interpretation of Lewis Carroll's story Momix fills the stage with a marvelously dizzying and inventive flow of movement and activities. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Momix, in a new interpretation of Alice, Wednesday, October 25th at UMass. 
millions of people do business with co-ops. October is co-op month. Go co-op. And together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. Solar energy? Go co-op. Become an owner member of Co-op Power, a 20-year-old multi-race, multi-class, intergenerational energy co-op. Join with 1,200 households and dozens of nonprofits, businesses, and cities and towns to create and own solar for all. Find out how at coopower.coop. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. It is time for the SciTech Cafe that is hosted by... Kirsten Nordstrom, who is a professor of physics at Mount Holyoke College, who has with her and us today a very special guest who will be presenting at the SciTech Cafe. So let's spend one minute first for those of our listeners who don't know what the SciTech Cafe is. Tell us, if you would, please, Professor. Yeah, so SciTech Cafe is about once a month uh, during the academic year. We bring in a an active research scientist to talk about their work. Um, it's a casual format. Uh, all ages, people are welcome uh, from all walks of life. Uh, it's free, um, and it's around dinner time. So it's around uh, 6 p.m. is when the doors open, 6.30 talk. Uh, the scientist talks for about 30 minutes, and then we do a Q&A for the rest of the hour. The doors open where? Uh, at Abandoned Building Brewery in East Hampton, Massachusetts. And there are many kids who go to this there this are event. some kids yeah yeah so even though it's at a brewery it is totally all ages uh we have some snacks if if you want some snacks we have some beer if you're of age for that um and we have some prizes for questions so the question part's really important yeah the questions are really great and the kids sometimes ask the mm -hmm. very best questions mm -hmm. or ask the questions the adults are well a little embarrassed, embarrassed. To, yeah. To ask. Yeah, yeah 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 they have no shame it's great so who's coming and what's the topic um so this month we have a geoscientist coming to visit so this is professor alice bradley at williams college and her talk is entitled memory and sea ice why the arctic is so sensitive to climate change so uh, I know Alice is on the on the Zoom with us. So I don't know if Alice, if you want to give us a few um, few seconds of summary for what your talk's going to yeah, be. Yeah, hum a few bars about climate exactly. change. Sure, um, as long as you don't make me actually sing, I can do science. Singing's not not my strong suit. Um, so Arctic sea ice, and especially uh, the area covered by sea ice at the end of each summer, um, has been one of the strongest indicators of climate change that we've seen so far. Um, so how sea ice might respond to climate change as we look decades or more into the future really depends on how good the ice pack is at recovering from one year to the next. Um, so in other words, if we have one really warm summer, um, is that going to make a big difference for years or decades to come, or is it kind of going to get forgotten about um, as the sea ice recovers? And so my talk is looking at how we can use maps of sea ice in the Arctic uh, that we get from sensors on satellites uh, to figure out how sensitive winter ice growth is to changes in summer Arctic Ocean conditions, really looking at how, how much the Arctic might be able to recover from year to year. Okay, I don't mean to be a 
uh, a downer and ask to give away the ending, but what's the answer? Um, sea ice is a remarkably resilient system. Uh, if climate change were to stop tomorrow, sea ice would be back to full strength, uh, back to full coverage in a matter of maybe 10 years. Um, there are other systems on Earth not quite so healthy, not quite so resilient, but, but sea ice is a good one. Well, but we keep reading about how uh, the, there's massive melt from Antarctica and, and, and other regions. So is that overblown? Are you, are you, are you an optimist here? Uh, <laughs> any optimism in a storm? Um, so this is where there's a really important distinction between ice that grows in the ocean and that sea ice. This is frozen ocean surface and then glaciers and ice sheets, which are accumulated piles of snow. Um, and so as uh, glaciers and ice sheets melt, that snow that's been sitting on land for, you know, hundreds to millions of years, it will melt and flow down into the ocean, adding water to the ocean. So that's when we hear about ice melting, driving sea level rise. That's really coming from glaciers and ice sheets and really that ice that's on land. Um, what I'm looking at with sea ice um, is already floating in the ocean. So just like you have an ice cube in a glass of water and it melts and your glass of water doesn't overflow, the sea ice that we have is already in the ocean. It's already displaced its water. Um, and so the effects that it's having is really in terms of how much heat there is in the ocean. So I'm not going to say I'm strictly an optimist. Um, there's certainly some big problems. Um, it's just that sea ice is not necessarily causing the problem. And you're, and you're saying that the heat, the, the heat is, is climate change. So that's, that's the reason why oh. we've lost so much sea ice? Yes, absolutely. Uh, warmer temperatures mean that we melt a little bit of sea ice that exposes more ocean to sunlight in the summer. Um, that makes it much easier to warm up the ocean and melt more sea ice. And how do you study this again? Like with satellites um, so, you're saying? Yeah, most of my work is using satellite-based uh, sensors. Um, and so we're measuring uh, the, basically we're measuring where on Earth there is ice cover. Um, and with places you know our ocean um, and it's covered in ice, then we know that's sea ice. Um, and so we can use these, uh, these data that we have um, every day going back to the 1970s, um, the beginning of the satellite era, uh, to track where and when we've had sea ice and how that's been changing over time. Hmm. And how, how the satellites just, uh, they, they shine light or what's going on there? Uh, so these particular satellites are using um, the background energy being radiated by the ice itself. So it's called the long wave or the black body radiation. Um, so everything that has a temperature above absolute zero, so you, you me, everything, um, the molecules that make us up are moving. Those molecules have charged particles, and they're, by wiggling a charged particle, you're sending out electromagnetic wave. Um, so it's exactly the same physics as, uh, you know, the Wi-Fi signal that your computer is getting. Um, it's just happening yes. randomly. And so this is, this is the same thing as like why, like if I turn on a stove, the like coils will glow, right? Yeah. It's just same a, idea. It's just like cold stuff instead of hot stuff. So that has a smaller yeah. temperature. Cool. 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 Yeah. We are. And so we can we can detect that from space, and that's really cool. We should note we are speaking with Professor Alice Bradley, who is Professor of Geosciences Sciences at Williams College, and Professor Kristen Nordstrom, a Professor of Physics at Mount Holyoke College. 
and they are with us because we want you to know about the SciTech Cafe. Happening again, where and when? Uh, it is at Abandoned Building Brewery in East Hampton, and doors are open at 6 p.m. tomorrow. Uh, yes, tomorrow. Ooh, doing some weak math during the semester is hard. Um, <laughs> what day weak, is it weak, again? Weak, weak math. <laughs> that was very good. <laughs> um, yes, tomorrow, Wednesday night, 6 p.m., doors open, 6.30. Alice will begin her talk. I would be interested in your going back, Alice, if you would, please, and tell us what exactly sea ice is that you're studying? Is this ice that forms and melts and forms and melts and it's predictable because of the history of it? Or is there something else that you are studying? Um, yeah, so it's it's uh, sea ice that forms um, every fall. We have, um, you know, it keeps growing over the course of the winter in the Arctic and around the Antarctic continent. Um, and then in the spring, I mean, spring in the Arctic, we're talking April, May. It's not exactly early spring there. Um, you're going to start That's getting a little melt here, on the though. surface. That's the same here, though. That's the same here. Sorry. <laughs> Someone who moved uh, yeah, here for more southern climbs. Yeah. Uh, just, just wait. Um, <laughs> and so in the summer, some of this ice is going to melt out. And what we've seen over the last few decades as climate change has really pushed things, especially in the Arctic, is that we're getting melt earlier and melt over a larger area. And so we're seeing less and less ice left in the summer. That surviving kind of that summer melt season and, to start and growing does this, again. Next this year. sea ice does it influence the ecosystem too, or is that, or is there not much to uh, speak yes. of up there? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of marine mammal species, especially that are really dependent on sea ice. Um, so uh, walruses, for example, um, need to stop swimming eventually, and historically they've been able to haul out of the water and hang out on sea ice and drift around, and then get back in the water <laughs> to hunt and you know, continue living. Um, but now areas where that have a lot of walruses tend to not have much sea ice left in the summer. And so they have to move on land instead. Um, you see the similar idea with polar bears um, that would normally be out on sea ice hunting seals, um, but they're trying to end up moving on land and basically starving for the summer because they don't have access to their hunting grounds. Oh, wow. Okay. And they don't have a place to be safe, to be able to rest. I mean, we see these images of the polar bears with their cubs. Th those are real? That's a question. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it, polar bears are, are kind of complicated. There's some areas where polar bears have historically lived more on land than others. Um, but there's a lot of communities of polar bears in the Arctic um, or regions of, of bear communities um, that have historically spent their full year on sea ice. Um, and that's where they really have access to be able to hunt seals, which are um, basically uh, cute fuzzy blobs of fat um, <laughs> and exactly what polar bears need to survive. Very um, And And yeah, without the sea ice, then they just don't have access to their food sources. And do you ever do you ever go up there to study this stuff or is this all all satellite data? Um, most of my work is satellite-based, um, but I do get up from time to time. Um, some of my work, not the project that I'm talking about this week, but uh, some of my other projects do work with Arctic indigenous communities. Um, so Inuit communities in northern Alaska um, who live and uh, well, live on the sea ice and, and next to the sea ice. And so it's really a part of their everyday lives. Okay. So it's impacting like the human ecosystem too in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. For the people who live up there, it's been a, a huge change to their way of life. Wow, wow. Um, so what do, you, what do you think are some take? So you're saying that the sea ice is actually resilient, but maybe there are other things that are less resilient in terms of this? So I guess you're distinguishing between glaciers and sea ice. Is that one thing? 
Yeah, well, the Earth's climate system is really big and really complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and so sea ice itself as a process is pretty resilient. Um, but as you are increasing global temperatures because of carbon emissions, um, because of CO2 and burning fossil fuels, no matter how resilient the sea ice is, it can't overcome those increases in temperature. Oh, man. So, so what should we do? <laughs> uh, that is a great question that I get a lot. Um, the, this, is, this is kind of both a very easy question and a very hard one. We know what the answer is. We know that in order to stop climate change, we as a human race need to stop burning fossil fuels, stop emitting so much CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, actually doing that um, requires a really substantial societal shift to um, towards using clean energy, towards changing the way we interact with energy and how much we use. Um, and that that's not a climate science problem. That's a, that's a right. problem. All right. Well, thank you so much. So uh, we're going to hear from Alice again uh, tomorrow night in East Hampton at Abandoned Billion Brewery. Um, I don't know For the SciTech Cafe. The thank you both professors very much. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Blue Heron? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. The Blue Heron, the restaurant in the grand old town hall building in the center of Sunderland. Good food, good service, an ever-changing menu, and a signature martini you'll come back for again and again. There's nothing quite like the Blue Heron. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. WHMP Northampton and WR. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today, and we are joined by Duke Goldman for a segment called Fair Play. Duke, a lot going on in the world of sports today. Perhaps you can bring us up to date on the most recent news, and then we want to get to a very big topic, which is are women, are other marginalized groups being paid fairly in sports today? But first, what's happening in baseball? So, to many sports fans' surprise, right now the Texas Rangers have qualified for the World Series. As the champions Houston of the Astros, American League. Champions of the American League. Today, the Philadelphia Phillies and Arizona Diamondbacks will be playing for the National League Championship. 
none of those teams, um, well, Houston won the division, but none of those teams had the best record. The 300 win teams in baseball all did not make it to the championship round. Um, so we're going to see Texas and either Philadelphia or Arizona play each other for the World Series championship. Duke Goldman, I would have thought that you'd be quite enthusiastic about the fact that teams that lost most of their games as recently as two years ago are now the champions of their leagues. And the teams that are champions are not the teams with payrolls that are with mind-boggling numbers and dollars. I mean, there's a certain kind of... Uh, I don't know, equality of competition in baseball, in Major League Baseball anyway, or is that a Pollyannish view of the world? Uh, no, not necessarily. I think it's it's a good thing. Oh, good. Well, that's an improvement. Not necessarily is an improvement over <laughs> am, I, the am I right questions have been, been answered recently, which are, no, you're wrong. <laughs> Dead wrong. Okay. I'm have, okay with it. Um, I, I do think that uh, the baseball playoff system is not necessarily set up for the best teams to win, but that's okay. I, I mean, you know, I, I am glad to see teams that have lesser payrolls. Um, many of those teams of which have lesser revenues still able to compete at the top levels. Um, but it's also watching these players play. The question that comes to mind is they make a lot of money. Uh, baseball players, are they being paid fairly? So to get into the issue, which we will be covering later in this segment and, you know, going forward, as we've been talking recently about women in sports and equity issues, uh, baseball happens to be the only one of our four major team sports where there is no salary cap. In other words, the baseball players can make as much money as the owners are willing to pay them. And so, is that fair? Well, I don't know. You're the expert. You're the baseball historian. I ask you that question. Well, to, to, to look at that, let's, let's think about a few factors here. Okay. Um, first of all, let's look at history. And baseball players early on in Major League Baseball in the 19th century, we're facing something called the Reserve Clause. It doesn't exist anymore. But from the beginning of baseball until just about the, bicent the bicentennial, 1976, uh, teams could sign a player in perpetuity. So players essentially had no leverage in contract negotiations unless they wanted to go and um, work in another field. Um, the reserve clause started out only reserving a few players, but pretty quickly in the 1800s, the entire team, um, once they signed a contract, that contract could be renewed year after year. By the club. There was, only, the club. There was only one uh, force here. Correct. It was the Major League Baseball Club that owned the player, and right. whether or not that was a violation of the uh, – 13th Amendment prohibition against involuntary servitude. Right. That case went to the Supreme Court. I believe that was part of Kurt Flood's case. And, well, guess what happened? Major League Baseball, the owners, the millionaires, now the billionaires, won, and the players lost. And they were paid a pittance. Well, yes, com uh, compared to what the owners were making. And this yes. changed historically. You know, in the 1800s into the early 1900s, in the first 25 years of Major League Baseball, 
Baseball was not such a uh, uh, munificent sport. They weren't making money hand over fist. And in the early 1900s, a major league payroll was something like 36% of revenue. By the 1960s, it was down to about 15%. And things started to change. And the players got a union head, Marvin Miller, and eventually they got freedom limited freedom, they negotiated a free agency deal where after six years of play, a player could sell themselves to the highest bidder. And there was no cap on salaries. And so, of course, Major League (coughs) salaries went through the roof. And today we have players making upwards of $30 million a year. And I think there are a lot of fans out there who say, why are these guys making so much money? After all, they're playing a sport, a sport that we played as kids. That we'd give anything in the world to be able to do what they're doing for work. Right. So I would push back on that a little bit. First of all, these guys are employed at their sport, and they are the very, very, very best in the world at what they do. If you watch the games, you saw Corey Seager, shortstop for Texas, hit a 440-foot home runs and have three hits yesterday in the first few innings of the game. Kyle Tucker, the left fielder for the Astros, desperately tried to catch a, a, a long shot hit by, I can't remember who it was, I, I was half asleep through the game, um, but one of the Texas players hit, hit a bomb and the ball barely grazed Tucker's glove and went into the bleachers. Right, the difference between a home run and and runs batted in and and out was like an inch. And they they showed on replay how Tucker had had three plays in the course of the playoffs, one of which he made an outstanding catch and two of which barely missed the catch. Now, most of us, you know, in in our schoolyard games, we wouldn't be making plays like that, nothing even close. These guys are great. No, but in our schoolyard days, it was, it's the bottom of the ninth, the bases are loaded, it's a 3-2 count, and here comes the pitch. That's what we would do, and these games, to a significant degree, were like that. Yes, so they were exciting, they were compelling, and yes, these players make a lot of money, but so do a lot of other people, right? And more to the point, to get back to what you were saying, Duke, the owners make a fabulous amount of money. They are raking it in these days. Even though baseball is no longer the, the most popular sport, um, you know, amongst major professional team sports, the revenues are through the roof. Because of television? Uh, more because of streaming uh, income, right? Uh, the internet has brought untold wealth to the owners. So uh, baseball is now, a, I think, something like $11, $12 billion sport. And the franchise values have also gone through the roof. So even if the teams are losing money, they're, they're gaining wealth. And so the players, unlike the other team sports, are getting a pretty good share of that wealth. Now, Jim Bouton, um, former pitcher who wrote the great um, diary Ball Four about his season in 1969. I heard him say about 20 years ago um, that the way he looked at it was the owners have been screwing the players for about 75 years, and now the players have been screwing them back for about 25. And he said, well, I think that means the players have 50 years to go, and then we'll be to reach an equal level. Yeah, I can't remember if it was Jim Bouton or Sparky Lyle who in uh, their book said, when I was a kid, I had two dreams. I wanted to play in the major leagues. I wanted to be a major league baseball player. That was my first dream. And my second dream was I wanted to join the circus. And I got to play for the New York Yankees and therefore do both. Yes. 
Well, in this circus, the players are now have gained. It's been said that uh, Major League Baseball, the the players have the strongest union in all of America, and they have fought off any salary caps. And so I, I would amend slightly what Jim Bouton said. Really, the owners were screwing the players for 100 years, roughly from 1876, the start of the National League, to our bicentennial, 1976. So I would say now what they need to do is, in 2076, for our tricentennial, let's have a salary cap all across America. Let's make sure nobody gets compensation more than $1 million a year. No CEOs, no players, nobody. Right, and I, I think all of us could agree no owners, with that. no owners, and they no can't, people. and they can't have uh, baseball franchises worth billions. That's right. Yeah, that's that's going nowhere. So, tell us more about your views with regard to compensation for athletes and where this is headed in the future, not only for baseball but for other sports. Well, I, I think what we have to realize is, entertainment or no, we all watch this and enjoy watching this, and we're watching some skilled individuals. And these individuals are going to argue for themselves and bargain collectively in many instances to try to get the best compensation they can get. And most recently, what we're seeing is women breaking the glass ceiling in this area and finally starting to get compensation that I truly think they merit. Um, One of the leading contenders for that is the U.S. women's national team. They had to fight tooth and nail to get equal compensation to, uh, to the men's soccer team. Now, one of the big arguments that so many people have used against women is saying, and I truly do think they're using it against women, they're saying, well, the women, they don't, they don't bring in the money. They don't get the ratings. They don't bring in the revenue. Well, when it comes to the women's soccer team, that hasn't been true. The women have been bringing in the money because the women have been doing one thing the men's team hasn't been doing, and that's winning, Right. Our society likes winners. The U.S. women's national team didn't win the last World Cup, but they won, I believe, four, the four of them before, and they've been phenomenal. And so they, they've been getting outstanding ratings. But you know what? It wasn't until 2022 that after six years of a lawsuit that the women pursued filing um, a suit uh, in front of the Equal Opportun- Educational Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, that a settlement was reached And finally, the National Soccer Federation in America agreed to give the women equal compensation through 2028. They had to fight tooth and nail to win this, and they finally did. Did they win at the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission? Well, it was settled. It didn't get adjudicated by the EEOC. It was in front of them, and it it played out for six years until finally the the, uh, National Soccer Federation settled the case. What comes first, Duke Goldman? The promotion of the sport by the owners or by industry or by television or by streaming services or the popularity of the sport that then gets uh, the ratings that justify the money. What's, what's, What's the chicken? What's the egg? And I'm glad you brought that up because that is the hidden story. For those who argue, well, the women don't draw the ratings. And in many cases, that's been true that they haven't had the ratings yet. They haven't had the revenues. The question is, have they had the opportunity? And in so many instances, women's sports have not gained the same opportunity. They have not been promoted to the same extent. Um, I'm reading a book right now on women's sports in which they reported that in 2021 at the NCAA tournament, it was exposed that the women's locker room had, quote, a lone weight rack 
its contents capping out at 30 pounds, which is not much weight for any athlete, standing pathetically next to a pile of limp yoga mats. The men had a state-of-the-art weight racks as far as the eye could see. And when it was pointed out, weak excuses were made for why the women did not have anything close to the same resources. This has been true time and again in women's sports. They have not been set up to succeed. The other thing is when people say the WNBA, for instance, does not draw that their salaries are something like one two hundredth of the men's salaries. Well, they don't they haven't drawn the attention. They didn't have the ratings. Well, I watched the NBA starting in the late 60s and just around then and into the 70s, the NBA started to become a big sport. Um, the NBA started in 1946, and it was a regional sport for about 25 years. The women are now starting to gain more and more, uh, rate, higher and higher ratings, and are beginning to become a more prominent sport. And as, if they get the support, I think they truly can compete on an equal field with the men for attention. What about popularity among sports fans? Is the, does the game, it's a different game, <clears throat> the women, women's, women's basketball is a different game than men's basketball. Uh, women's what we call soccer, eh, pretty much the same game. What do you make of those, those differences or lack thereof? I, 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 I'm not going to say that uh, the women's game is, is the exact same as the men's game. The, I, it's I would better tell, in some ways. I think it's better in many ways. I think it's more of the game that I grew up watching where it was a team sport, where the women pass the ball and, and play team defense and, and in, instead of the game that the men play above the rim, which involves mostly slam dunks and then three-point shots. Um, are the, women, are the men able to achieve certain athletic uh, feats that the women are not in basketball? Yeah, that's probably true. Um, so, you know, it differs a bit by sport. But in the men's sport, uh, uh, soccer, for instance, as you said, the, the women are just as good. We are speaking with Duke Goldman. This is his segment, Fair Play, with a little bit of a mishmash of, uh, of uh, talking baseball. We'll be right back with the Duke after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem. Using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair 
repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion, and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Duke Goldman. This is his segment, Fair Play, and we are talking about compensation for women in sports, in major sports, and whether or not women will achieve equality with men in terms of the compensation they receive. And Duke, you've made the point, yes, there has been improvement. There is less of a wage gap, but you also say the wage gap that remains is still enormous. How big and how long until that societal problem is resolved in a satisfactory way? Uh, a long, long time, because it takes a long time to make these changes, because the, um, there's a persistent inequality in, our, in, in, in all over the world. The women in Australia, uh, the Matildas women team, uh, have, have been fighting for compensation, equal compensation now for a while. And, and FIFA, the, the International Soccer Federation, is, is being uh, um, pushed hard to, to ensure that women all over the world get equal compensation. And yet there's, there's all sorts of sports. There's Australian rules football, and there are women teams that are making approximately a third of what the men's teams are making. And they're, they're advocating. The women are realizing, I think they have to take a page out of what the men's baseball uh, teams did when they had unionization and they were they had solidarity that they have to go out there and advocate strongly for themselves and they will but it's still going to take time when you have something like facilities that are primitive for the women in in basketball in 2021 you realize that you know the the men involved still don't want to see that women are given a fair chance um, it's a battle it's a battle for the hearts and minds of all people in, in, in the world to recognize that both genders should have an equal chance to compete. I have a t-shirt. It says something along the lines, um, uh, equality for all. It said equal rights for everyone does not mean fewer rights for you. We're not talking about pie. Is the ascendancy of women's sports a danger to the economics of men's sports? And if not, why is it so hard to achieve that equality? Well, I think it's perceived that way, right? It's perceived as a pie that if women get a bigger slice, the men get a smaller slice. 
I, I think the reality is not really that way. If, if people are, are, are visionary about it, they realize the pie can be expanded. The pie is often expanded. The more women get attention in sports, the more sports gets attention. And the more women pay attention to sports. That's right. Absolutely. So I think it takes people recognizing that uh, it's a great thing to see all sports, all ships rise if, if all of them are given opportunity. Yeah, you would think that if the pop, the percentage of the population watching basketball increases because more people are watching women's basketball and they had never watched basketball at all before, that's money in the pockets Absolutely. of owners. But it seems to be what it also requires a confluence of events, including uh, streaming services and television yes. stations that are going to yes. broadcast them. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and you know, all, all everything changes all the time. So some of the you know the the the, the cable uh, regional networks are dying. So it's all going to be going to online services. But in some ways, that probably will benefit um, um, women's sports because I think that they it'll really come down more to who's driving the engine of economic opportunity. And I think women are in the ascendancy. I think we are are going to see in the upcoming years that women's sports gain more attention um, and that that women become more prominent. And I don't think it's going to be suffering, you know, leading to suffering in men's sports. And because, you know what, there's very little live broadcasting of any nature. Sports is pretty much what's left. And, and, and I think also in this world where there's so much strife and difficulty, people need diversions. I'm interested in your perspective on this, Duke Goldman. I did something I almost never do, which is I went <clears throat> looking for a uh, football game last weekend because I wanted to see what happened to the team that beat UMass, uh, what, 62 or 60-something to nothing the week before and found out <clears throat> that these college t uh, leagues have their own networks I, I, what? Um, and but they do, and then they rebroadcast, and they're available on uh, streaming services and cable, and it's really quite extraordinary the business of collegiate sports. And I'm wondering whether you see that as a benefit to women's collegiate sports or as a detriment, because well, football pretty much excludes the women. Well, it doesn't actually. It doesn't completely exclude women because there have been women leagues, but it's 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 not. That's that's not going to be a, an area in which women compete very successfully. I uh, I I think actually it still means more opportunities um, for women because potentially there will be you know a women's sports channel. I could see that happening upcoming. Um, I, I I do think that um, you know having myself watch women's college basketball live how and how exciting it can be that it's going to gain more attention um you know the, the the field is open it's an open playing field and i think women are going to be able to do well when there was a wnba player ended up being held hostage in russia that was a major story right and i'm wondering whether that reflects the ascendancy in some ways the interest paid to women's sports your thoughts about that well, it reflects a lot of things. This Griner. Yeah, this is Brittany Griner, who was held uh, in, in, and detained in Russia for something like six months. Um, 
you know, that that turned into a political football, so that was part of the reason this this was also paid attention to. But no, no doubt she was a prominent athlete. You know, Megan Rapinoe and the uh, women's soccer team is a prominent athlete. I think more and more, uh, you know, for a long time it was women tennis players and that was about it. We're not there anymore. We're in a world where women are gaining traction in all sports uh, with the possible exception of football, all around the world. And I think that this is be- being recognized. If you asked me that question 10 years ago, I probably would have said, eh, they've still got a long way to go. I think the, the way is a, lot, is a lot shorter now than it was. Duke Oldman, you are a, a sports historian, a baseball historian. You are expert on the Negro Leagues in Major League Baseball. And I'm wondering whether you have some thoughts whether this – Uh, new prominence of women's sports uh, relies on something other than uh, uh, individuals. Uh, And by that, I mean we spend a lot of time as a country uh, honoring Jackie Robinson, although it wasn't just Jackie Robinson who integrated Major League Baseball. Um, And I'm wondering whether we're looking at individual women who are leading this charge or whether there's some societal uh, uh, movement that is really making this, creating this sea change? You know, like like all things, it's not one or the other, it's both, right? There, there are, you know, prominent individuals, you know, Serena Williams drew tremendous attention. Uh, Simone Biles in gymnastics drew tremendous attention. At the same time, I think it is some recognition. We're in the age of women. This is, you know, after the Me Too movement and, you know, fighting against uh, gender harassment. We're at a time of hopefully more and more people recognizing basic humanity across across genders, across sexuality, across everything else. And that, you know, sports are sports, you know, whoever plays it. And we'll be getting into this in future Fair Play segments as we talk about the transgender issues. This is the latest um, place where there is going to be, there is a lot of pushback, but there's a lot of uh, arguments for the idea that people should be able to participate um, in whatever gender they, they are experiencing at the time. All right. We're not going to have that conversation today, but let's tease the next fair play. What is your perspective on uh, transgender women in sports? The more I read about it, the more I begin to see that in most instances, uh, once an athlete goes through especially um, uh, hormonal changes, they belong competing in the gender to which they are currently um, living. We have been speaking with Duke Goldman. This is his segment, Fair Play. Thank you so much, Duke. My pleasure. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Two weeks from today, Greenfield residents will elect their next mayor, a handful of city councilors, a new tax assessor, and more. Incumbent Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner says she wants to continue serving the city for one more term. I want the voters of Greenfield to know that I want to be their mayor, 
I love the city. I love the job, strangely enough. And I will continue to get stuff done and move Greenfield forward. The League of Women Voters of Franklin County is hosting Greenfield Candidates Night tonight at 7 p.m. at GCC. Smith College is making progress on converting their campus to carbon neutral by the end of the decade. The $220 million geothermal campus energy project began last year. The Gazette reports Smith's solution to reduce emissions is to construct a series of wells that descend 800 feet into the ground in a closed loop. Liquid sent through the wells adjust to the constant temperature at that depth and then transferred to a power plant on campus. The geothermal project is expected to be completed in 2028, with the campus looking to achieve carbon neutrality by 2030. A basic life support ambulance was put into service Monday in Hadley. It's the first town-owned and operated BLS ambulance in the history of the department. The new ambulance will be staffed initially during daytime hours from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. for seven days a week. It's anticipated that this new ambulance could be deployed to cover an estimated 100 to 150 missed secondary calls for service. A real nice sunny day today. Temperature is mainly going to hang around the low to mid 60s. And as we go into the evening, we'll start to see those temperatures dip down into the mid 30s and the low 40s. Thankfully, tomorrow is going to be another nice and sunny day with temperatures going up into the high 60s. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A food co-op is a different kind of grocery store. A credit union is a different kind of bank. Co-ops and credit unions are owned by the people who shop and bank there. Keep it close to home with local co-ops, credit unions, and worker-owned co-ops. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op isn't just a music store, it's community. It's where kids take lessons and meet other kids to play with. Where an old slide guitar master meets a fiery young harp player and the blues is reborn. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op. Instruments, lessons, community. Get ready for an action-packed homecoming weekend at UMass. Join us for two thrilling games in Amherst starting Friday, November 3rd, as UMass Hockey takes on the Northeastern Huskies. Puck drop is set for 7.30. The weekend fun continues Saturday, November 4th, as Massachusetts football hosts Merrimack. Tailgating on Saturday, November 4th, starts at 11.30 a.m. and kickoff is set for 3.30. Rally up your friends, family, and classmates and return to campus. Get your tickets now by visiting umassathletics.com slash tickets. You were, you are, UMass. Hi, this is Scott Trout of Cordell & Cordell. If you're a dad who is facing divorce, there are extra layers of stress that may include stereotypes and assumptions. No two situations are the same. Our legal experience and dedication prepare us for whatever legal challenges we face together. You need a partner you can count on. For more than 30 years, Cordell & Cordell has represented men in divorce. Schedule an appointment with one of Cordell & Cordell's Boston-area attorneys, 10 Cabot Road, Suite 210, Medford, Massachusetts, 02155. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. 
We welcome to the studio Crystal Randall, who is the uh, director, president? The director. Of Friends of Hampshire County Homeless, who is here today with us because we want you to know about an event, and we want you to know more about Friends of Hampshire County Homeless. So, if you would, Crystal, please tell us what they are. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me today. So we wanted to talk today about our event on Saturday, October 28th. That's this Saturday from 3 to 5 or so p.m. called Ecapella. It will be at Historic Northampton, right outside of the Shepherd Barn on 66 Bridge Street. Okay, and what is it? I would, had hopes that we were going to hear from this group, but it sounds really interesting. It's a new, it's a new acapella group. Relatively new, yes? Well, it's it's a musical fundraiser we're putting on okay. through the Friends of Hampshire County Homeless ah. Individuals with okay. the help of Brit. And what we're doing is we're raising funds to support our long-term housing initiatives for the community. So we will have multiple singing groups singing, and the event is free, but donations for our fund are highly appreciated and encouraged. Okay, so tell us a bit more about the event, and then we're going to spend some time on what Friends of the Hampshire County Homeless does and why does it. But first, about the event, (laughs) because the event sounds like fun. Of course, it is fun. We've done it in years past, so we have multiple singing groups, and we would like to thank them for coming. But we, so we'll have the Green Street Brew there, the Northampton High, Northampton, Smith College Celebrations Dance Company, Smith Chamber Singers, Pacapella, Black Acapella, Groove, the Smith Improves, the Smithereens, Vibes, and the Notables, the Mount Holyoke Nice Shoes, and the UMass Sharp Attitude, and we're so happy to have them. And wow, thankful. so you've got all the acapella groups from all the local colleges a whole, and UMass. Yeah, a whole group of them, and we're so thankful for you know them giving them t- their time to this cause. So 13 groups in total, which is a very Halloween-appropriate number. So. <laughs> uh, Britt Albert, your, your position with the Friends of Ham- the Hampshire County Homeless. I'm a volunteer. I've been helping to organize um, downtown performances for a few years now. Um, and I took it over from uh, Harry Rogers, who was a person who founded the, the, the sort of program. But we've expanded it a bit uh, to include some of these festivals. So there's one in the fall with Ecapella, and there's something called House Music in the spring. Uh, and there are you know, really nice opportunities to, to interact with some of these great, very generous acapella groups around here uh, and who are willing to help us, which we love. Um, but we wouldn't be able to do it without you, Brett, so thank you so much. We really appreciate you. How, how many years has this acapella festival gone on for? Well, acapella now is in its third year as it stands. Uh, the first year, uh, so four years ago, well, no, because of COVID, it got messed up. I can't tell you exactly when. COVID's all a blur to me. But uh, the first year we did it, we thought it would be fun to have um, musicians downtown performing during the Halloween trick-or-treating. Um, but that didn't work out so well because the kids were so intent on their candy and dragging their parents <laughs> around that nobody listened to the acapella groups. Caldwell Banker was nice enough to host a, a bunch of, of groups, and nobody paid them the slightest mind. It was all about the candy. So after that, uh, the, you know, the kids liked, I mean, the, the students liked the idea of doing something like this. So we found a little more contained, formal place to do it. And we're so grateful to Historic Northampton for, for hosting us and their beautiful property. It's plenty of room. It's a lovely place. A great place for a concert. So let's go back to to Crystal Randall. The event is 
titled what? And it is where and when again, please? Very fittingly, it is titled E. Capella as um, kind of a tribute to Halloween itself, a little play on words there. And it is, as Britt just said, at the historic Northampton outside of the Shepherd Barn on 66 Bridge Street. There is a rain location, but we're supposed to have a, a nice day that day. It is the Sweeney Concert Hall, Sage Hall, Smith College. Doesn't look like we'll need it, but... Okay, and it is and it is when? October 28th, this Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. You can bring your lawn chairs and a blanket, and it, it's always a fun time. And no admission fee? No admission fee, totally free. Donations are encouraged and support homeless in our area. But there will be a raffle, and Crystal uh, mentioned the names of some of the groups that have, um, I'm sorry, businesses that have donated gift cards, but it's a great raffle. Um, Lots of generous uh, people downtown have, have, have helped this event. Yeah. Okay, let's go back. It's a fundraiser for the Friends of Hampshire County Homeless. What is the Friends of Hampshire County Homeless? What does the organization do? Absolutely. We serve homeless individuals in our area. But if it's okay with you before I do that, we do want to take the time to um, thank our sponsors that have helped us put this fundraiser on. Well, we would be remiss if we did not <laughs> allow that time. We couldn't have done it without them. Okay, so, let's hear about the sponsors. And, you know, in addition to Historic Northampton, special thanks to Lori Sanders there for helping us coordinate the Downtown Northampton Association, Cornucopia, Fire-Type Chocolate, State Street Fruit, Grow Food Northampton, The Familiar, Sweeties, and Boho Chocolate. We just so appreciate everything they've done for us, um, especially in providing some little treats and gift cards for our raffle. Which will be, again, Saturday when? Saturday from 3 to 5. Because when, after you announce the, announce the uh, sponsors, then we do that. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday <laughs> from 3 works. to 5. Okay. At Historic Northampton. Okay. You got it. Back to the serious business at hand. <laughs> what is the Friends of, uh, Friends of Hampshire County Homeless, and what does the organization do? We are a nonprofit based in Hampshire County. We've been around for 30 or so years, and in those 30 years, we've been primarily and solely volunteer-run. This year, they took a leap of faith and hired their first director, which is myself, in hopes to expand their impact in the area. And they run a lot of programs to partner with both nonprofits and service agencies in areas, but also provide support to those who need it in our community, ranging from long-term housing support to help with prescription medication assistance to a winter clothing and boot program. It's a really passionate group of individuals. and um, Do you find housing for people or are you dealing with people? I mean, are you dealing with people who are unhoused? Are you dealing that, with that's people a good question. on the streets? <laughs> who, who is being helped? We don't provide services directly, so we are not necessarily the best point of contact directly if someone is looking for housing. But we support other agencies in the area who run long-term housing programs. And looking forward into the future, we hope to raise funds to create more opportunities for more long-term housing in the community to kind of aid the, the aid a solution for homelessness in the area for the long-term. So someone's homeless, uh, living in a car on the street. What should 
they do if they want to seek some services, or what do you do? What does your organization do to try to help them? That's a great question. So as I've said right now, we are a small staff, so we, we are not the, pers the people for someone to come to directly if we need help, but we always make one rec recommendations. Um, Division of Community Care, City of Northampton is a great place to go. They have a drop-in center that they just started that's open every day that individuals in need can go to to get the resources they need. Um, and are you one of the resources? Do you provide clothing or shoes? or? We do have a clothing program. We have a boot program. We get a lot of our referrals from partnering agencies like Division of Community Care or Mana Kitchen, and we disperse kind of our resources through them. Dan Torres, you have a question? I do. Do you have a physical location? I mean, where would, so, or, yes. or are you out <laughs> in the streets? Okay, where well, is it? More or less. We just opened a first and new administration office down near downtown. Um, it is not open all the time. It is a place that we invite our partners and nonprofit collaborators to come and meet us with. Um, again, it's not generally like open to the public for anyone to just come by, but we do have an administration office for the first time ever. We're really excited about that. And, you know, we are entering a period of growth in our organization where we're really trying to meet the gap of need and resources in the community and collaborate with other agencies in the area to make the biggest impact. And you said downtown, you mean downtown Northampton, but most... It, but most people wouldn't go there. It's really more of a uh, a location for other agencies to come visit you. Is, is that my hearing that correctly? Correct. Okay. It's administration only, so no direct care services, and it is. Um, so you get uh, to contact people who are unhoused. Is that is that by you having your volunteers walking the streets and getting to know them? Can you talk a little bit about the, what the daily operations look like, I guess, since... You are, it seems like you, you are the one and only employee, maybe, and, and, <laughs> and you are doing this all on a volunteer basis. Yeah, you know, there's a lot here, and it can be a, a lot to wrap your head around because there are so many players and so many facets and so much to understand about how long-term housing is operated and how the shelters are operated. So what we do is we help provide support to some of our area's long-term housing locations and through doing that we provide them um, you know food as needed clothing as needed and support them financially when needed a lot of the actual referrals for specific housing needs go through other organizations because again of, of the where their strengths lie Good I question. Would, I'd be interested to know really based on just what I see in downtown Northampton, you see so many people who are asking for help. How big a problem is homelessness in Hampshire County? That's a good question. And I think it would vary depending on who you ask, but certainly there are there is a need in this area for homelessness support. And um, the community really recognizes it. You know, the division of community care that just opened to the city is really making a great effort to step in where needed. And 
you know, one thing that I think is really special about Northampton is the way that all of the organizations kind of join together to try to support the homeless individuals and unhoused individuals in our community as powerfully as possible and how the agencies really try to work together to do that. Um, it's, it's really unique to this area. Are there enough beds and shelters in Hampshire County? I, I don't think there's enough bed and shelters anywhere. <laughs> that's, that's a high bar to me. Um, but certainly I do know that our community is trying to do what they can. We are speaking with Crystal Randall, who's the director of Friends of Hampshire County Homeless, and Britt Albritton, who has been a volunteer. Britt, for how long? I can't remember, Bill. It's been too long. I honestly don't a, know. It's been a long time. <laughs> how, how long has uh, Friends of Hampshire County Homeless been in existence? Um, well, I haven't been I haven't been involved for that long. But what did you say, Crystal? Thirty years. Thirty it's years. Really remarkable, yeah. and all volunteer led that entire time. There's yeah. a core group of individuals, a board that really gave their precious time and resources and knowledge to keep the team going, and um, they've done really remarkable work in those thirty years. But I've probably been organizing downtown singing for. A decade. I think the first house music uh, was in 2016, um, and I was doing this just the busking downtown before that. And uh, yeah, we have a lot of really lovely activities. A lot of generous people who perform downtown to support. Um, now, these so these long term programs that we're supporting, right? You're you're raising money in order mm -hmm. to provide long term housing for 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 houseless people. Um, in, like you just finished one for people with disabilities, right? Correct. We did yeah. just finish one for disabilities. We've done a teen housing project in yeah. the area. So, you know, what we do is, is we get the program up and going, we get the building up and going, and then the day-to-day -day operations. Yeah. We have partners in the area support that because of our yeah. bandwidth. Um, but we're looking forward to getting... You know, housing, there is never enough housing. You're correct about that. So so, so these, these downtown campaigns have done things like raise money for, for, um, for, for teens and stuff. And it's mm -hmm. been a, just a lovely opportunity for teens to help teens, essentially. Yeah, these, yeah. these music fundraisers are great. And, you know, we're so excited that Ecapella is a Saturday to help us really get the support we need in our area for the homeless individuals and for our long-term housing goals for our community. We'll be back with more with Crystal Randall and Britt Albritton, friends of Hampshire County Homeless, right after this. On the shares and always I was poor My crops I lay into the banker's store my wife took down and died. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. 
The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Millions of people do business with co-ops. October is co-op month. Go co-op, and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. Solar energy? Go co-op. Become an owner member of Co-op Power, a 20-year-old multi-race, multi-class, intergenerational energy co-op. Join with 1,200 households and dozens of nonprofits, businesses, and cities and towns to create and own solar for all. Find out how at coppower.coop. Simply Safe, our award-winning home security has advanced sensors, HD cameras, and now this 24/7 lifeguard protection. Only from Simply Safe, monitoring agents can see and speak to intruders through our indoor camera to help stop crime in real time and for fast police response. Now get 45% off any new system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/radio. Advanced home security, 24/7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There's no safe like Simply Safe. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Crystal Randall, director of the Friends of Hampshire County Homeless, and Britt Albritton, who has been with this organization for many, many years as a volunteer and one of the persons who's responsible for the music, which we will be hearing this Saturday as a fundraiser, although there is absolutely no charge, free and open to the public, just come. There's going to be a spectacular acapella for spectacular acapella performances. Tell us again, Crystal, where and when? It is at Historic Northampton at 66 Bridge Street, outside of the Shepherd Barn. And when? This Saturday, October 28th, from about 3 to 5 p.m. And you want to give us a quick rundown again of some of the groups who will be performing, because it's quite the impressive list. It is. There's 13 of them, and I would love to share again. We're so thankful that they are giving their time to this event. We have the Green Street Brew Group, the Northampton High Northamptons, Smith Colleges Celebrations Dance Company, Smith Chamber Singers, Pacapella Black Capella, Groove, Smith and Poofs, Smithereens, Vibes and the Notables, the Mount Holyoke Nice Shoes, and UMass Sharp Attitude. Totally cool. Okay, give us a minute, if you would, please, on Hampshire County Homeless and how you raise money. Is it all by individual donations, the way uh, this this weekend's performance will help con- will help contribute to that? Yeah, thank you so much. So as a registered nonprofit that has been in operation and giving back for over 30 years, we rely solely on donations and grants to run our programs and when you say the programs, just quickly list for us, if you would, please. We're talking about uh, boots and shoes and clothes and uh, yeah. other, ki- other kinds of necessities of life. Necessity of life programs, for sure, along with the long-term housing support and opportunities we've created in 
the community over the years. We do also provide programs that give clothing, winter boots, prescription assistance, uh, first and last housing. Uh, and, and you've, in fact, created housing um, places. We for- have. Yes, we have. Um, and, you know, at the same time, we're so thankful for the people who have helped keep those in operation kind of on the day-to-day. Such as for teenagers? For teenagers, te- um, for individuals with disabilities. We also had a big hand in the interfaith winter shelter. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Crystal Randall and Britt Albritton from Hampshire, Friends of Hampshire County Homeless. We thank you both so very much for your work. And again, this Saturday, what time? Three to five. <laughs> at Historic Northampton. Thank you both so very much. Thank you so much. On your shoulder. There's a truck out on a four lane a mile or more away. Tag your it. Tom Hartman. Weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Blue Heron? They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. The Blue Heron, the restaurant in the grand old town hall building in the center of Sunderland. Good food, good service, an ever-changing menu, and a signature martini you'll come back for again and again. There's nothing quite like the Blue Heron. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at WHMP.com. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station.